I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. A Tinder meetup leads to a woman's disappearance and her date on the run. A bad coincidence or something more sinister? This is the Sydney Loof story. Hi, Amy. Hey, Megan. How was your weekend? My weekend was great. I had company, as I know you did as well. I know. That's right. We're both entertaining. It's nice that we both have houses now to finally entertain in, right? Yes. And I can't wait to come visit you with the family in a few weeks. I know. We can't wait either. I have to talk to you. I have some ideas for fun stuff for us to do, but we won't bore the listeners with that. So, (laughs) Uh, Today's episode was suggested by a listener as well. So we would like to thank Mary Ruth for bringing Sydney's case to our attention. I also, Amy, want to take a little, just a moment here to thank the listeners who've taken time to review our show. Some of their comments and reviews have just been so lovely and so insightful. I'd like to read one that was particularly meaningful to me. This listener says, I would love to take a class with one of these women. I love how they look at things from each angle and how they agree to disagree on some things while treating each other and the listeners with integrity. I love that. I didn't read that one. That's really nice. I think it's really nice and it says it all for us. And I can't tell you how much it means to us that our listeners see it and that they hear it. We will continue to do our best in this regard and we really appreciate the support. Now let's meet Sydney Loof. Sydney was born in 1993 to parents Susie and George Loof, and she had both a brother and a sister. The family lived in Neely, Nebraska, and by all accounts, Sydney had a wonderful childhood. 
while she was diagnosed with scoliosis in high school, which definitely slowed her athletics a bit, she didn't let it stop her. Sydney was described as a warm, kind person that everyone liked. She was good to others, generous in opening her home to people who were in need and compassionate. After high school, Sydney moved to her own apartment in Lincoln, Nebraska with her kitty, who she adored, and she worked at a hardware supply chain called Menards. I've never heard of it. It's like the Midwest version of a Home Depot or a Lowe's. After spending a few months in her new town, Sydney was interested in starting a romantic relationship, and she went on Tinder to try to meet someone, just like many people do. While she was on there, Sydney quickly matched with a young woman named Audrey, and the pair began messaging one another. After about, I'd say, 100 text message exchanges, the pair had their first date on November 14th, 2017. Sydney and Audrey had a wonderful time on their first date, so they decided to go out again pretty soon. In fact, they decided to go out the following night, which would be November 15th, 2017. Sydney went to work on the 15th, and based on an adorable photo she posted that evening, caption, ready for my date, we know that she was really excited to see Audrey again. She was feeling happy. But this posted photo was the last time anyone would hear from Sydney. The first inkling that something was wrong was the very next morning. On November 16th, 2017, Sydney did not show up to work, which was very unlike her. She had always been a very reliable employee. Sydney's family also couldn't get in touch with her, and after two days of no contact, her parents drove the two-hour ride to their daughter's apartment. When they got there, they found Sydney's cat had been left without food and water, which Sydney would never do. Her car was also in the driveway, and her belongings looked untouched, but there was no sign of Sydney. Her parents immediately contacted the police to report her missing. And that's always an indication in some of these cases, especially with animals. We would never leave our animals. Of course not. Investigators interviewed everyone Sydney knew, and they looked up as much surveillance as possible for the last few days or the prior days before she disappeared. They found that Sydney had left Menards at the end of her shift around 6 p.m. on the night she had her second date with Audrey. Again, that was November 15th. But that was the last time Sydney Loof turned up on any video surveillance. Meanwhile, Sydney's friends and family were doing everything they could to locate her. Was the plan that Audrey would be meeting her at Sydney's house, picking her up at work? Do we know what their plan was for that evening? I believe she was going to pick Sydney up from her home. From her home. Okay. Sydney was going to leave work, go home yep. and, you know, refresh gotcha. a little bit. You know, this happens now where people's friends and family, they have to act as their own detectives in their case. Right. And it's what I think you and I would probably do, too. So Sydney's friends examined those photos that Sydney posted of her date with Audrey. And one of the friends decided to create her own Tinder profile to see if she could match with Audrey and get some information about her. This reminds me of Sarah Butler's case. I believe her family and friends did something similar to try to find where she was as well. Very smart. That's right. So much to her friend's luck, she actually matched with Audrey really quickly. And she was able to start a conversation with Sydney's last known contact. After she started this conversation, Sydney's friend was able to get Audrey's phone number, which she immediately handed over to the police. Amazing. Good detective work, right? Really good. Investigators got a hold of Audrey and questioned her about Sydney's whereabouts. Now, Audrey was adamant that she and Sydney had had two very nice dates where they drove around talking and smoking some marijuana. But after the second date on November 15th, 
Audrey said that she dropped Sydney off at a friend's house and had not heard from her since, even though she said that they had a good time and they were going to see each other, they were planning to see each other again. Police were suspicious at this point, Amy, but they didn't have enough evidence on Audrey to pursue anything. In the meantime, days went by and there was no word from Sydney. As we've discussed in several other episodes, the first two days of a missing person case is really critical. And the longer that time goes by without hearing from a missing person, the lower the odds are that they'll be found alive. So Sydney's family was getting really scared. But police were able to look at Sydney's cell phone records and they found a ping off a cell tower in Wilbur, Nebraska. Okay, Wilbur is a very small town on the outskirts of Lincoln, Nebraska, just to give you some geographical context. And it gave investigators a definitive location to start looking for Sydney. Meanwhile, her friends, Sydney's friends, were spreading the word of her disappearance on social media and holding candlelight vigils at her old high school. Her family had billboards, posters, and pictures spread out all over the area in an effort to find Sydney. The community pulled out all the stops, Amy, but more days passed and there was no word from Sydney. While the family was really hoping for good news, investigators were taking a hard look at Audrey. And what they found out was that Sydney's Tinder date wasn't even named Audrey at all. Oh, wow. So who was Audrey really? Well, her legal name was Bailey Boswell, a young woman who grew up in Leon, Iowa. So who is Bailey and what's her background? Bailey's father had reportedly been murdered when she was quite young, but she was reportedly still a happy child who was a very talented athlete at school in both basketball and running. Bailey went to college on a basketball scholarship, but reportedly got involved with a man who was very abusive during her time at college. The pair had a child together, but the child was removed from their care due to substance abuse issues in the home and a concern for the child's welfare. Is Bailey around the same age as Sydney at this point? Yes, they were around the same age, both in their 20s, early to Mm mid-20s, yes. Bailey eventually left that abusive relationship, and after she did, she posted an advertisement on Backpage looking for a, quote, sugar daddy. Do you remember Backpage? Nope, should I? What is it? (laughs) No, it, it was a long time ago. Back, Backpage has been actually shut down since it served as an advertiser for sex trafficking. But oh. in 2016, it was an online platform similar to Craigslist. Gotcha. Was it considered like the dark web version of Craigslist? Basically, they were saying that they weren't advertising for sex trafficking. They were just they had, were the you know, platform. People yeah. had. Yeah, they were just the platform for it. But regardless, it no longer exists. Gotcha. Well, Bailey was successful on Backpage in finding herself a sugar daddy, a man by the name of Aubrey, not Audrey, but Aubrey Trail. We'll discuss Aubrey in more detail later. So hold on to that. So what was Bailey doing on Tinder using a false name? Well, Bailey had several pending fraud charges against her. So it's possible she was using a fake name to stay under the radar. When police found out about her record, it put them on high alert. Guess where Bailey lived, Amy? Well, I'll tell you. Wilbur, Nebraska. Yep. Okay, that makes sense. So that's the town where they got Sydney's last cell phone ping. The police were very concerned for Sydney's safety at this point, and they got a search warrant for Bailey's basement apartment. Bailey was nowhere to be found when investigators knocked on her door, but they noticed the apartment was spotless, like so well cleaned, the bleach scent could be smelled outside the apartment and by the other neighbors. In fact, Bailey's neighbors had complained to their landlord 
that the bleach smell was so strong it was making them physically sick. Oh, that's not a good sign. No, it's not a good sign. Police officers found Viagra and several sex toys in Bailey's apartment, which is not indicative of a crime by itself by any measure. But combined with the other evidence, they were growing very concerned about Sydney's safety. So the key to Sydney's disappearance seemed to lay with Bailey Boswell. That's what investigators thought. Now, as the police were looking for Bailey, remember, she wasn't there. The case takes a bizarre turn in that Bailey posts a Facebook video explaining that she and Sydney went out twice, but that was all, and that on the second date, she dropped Sydney off at a friend's home and expected to see her again. But the Facebook video didn't just feature Bailey. Remember Bailey's sugar daddy, Aubrey Trail? Mm-hmm. He's also in the video with her. Aubrey Trail was 51 years old, so oh. much older than the early 20s Bailey. And he did most of the talking in this video. I was going to ask you, what role did he play? I looked at it, of course. Uh, the video was like nine and a half minutes. And I think Aubrey is talking for about seven and a half minutes. So he was explaining that he and Bailey were forced to keep a low profile right now because the police had been spreading lies about them and their involvement in Sidney Luke's disappearance. <laughs> he just inserted himself. Well, the police did contact, you know, they were looking for her when they found out that she lived with him. I believe they were curious okay. about the both of them. And they did actually speak to the both of them. Mm-hmm. Aubrey maintained that he and Bailey had nothing to do with Sidney's disappearance and that they had cooperated entirely with law enforcement. Mm. I would encourage you to listen for yourselves, but I can tell you most of his rant, and that's what it comes across as, is about the pair being falsely accused and having been totally cooperative and have, you know, no wrongdoing. Any regard for the victim here? I hope she's found. Yes, they did say that. They said they wish the best for Sydney and her family. But he ended, Aubrey ended the video in a bizarre way saying, quote, I mean, no disrespect to the family, but as far as the police department, fuck you. Oh, so I don't think that's a very wise move for two people on the run and who are being sought by the police. But I don't think that would have occurred to Aubrey Trail either. Aubrey, as I mentioned earlier, met Bailey through Backpage. And while he claimed to be a legitimate antique dealer, He was actually a very seasoned repeat offender with a long history of various financial crimes, mostly involving writing bad checks, forgery, and theft. For background, Aubrey had reportedly been abandoned by his parents as a child and spent most of his formative years in foster care before being returned to his remarried mother. Unfortunately for him, he was then subsequently abused by his stepfather in that relationship. So he had a bad background. No, it it sounds like he had a tough start. He definitely did. And he was in trouble a lot. He wound up in a juvenile detention center at the age of 17, followed by several prison stints and parole. He was a well-known entity to the police, and it was now imperative they find this couple and bring them in for questioning. Investigators tracked Bailey and Aubrey to Branson, Missouri on November 30th. So this is just about two weeks after Sydney had disappeared. So these two are on the run, it seems, or they have reason to be in Missouri? No, they're on the run, Mm -hmm. (laughs) for sure. And they left a veritable breadcrumb trail of their whereabouts all over surveillance cameras in various places. So it did not take the police long at all to catch up with them. What's most interesting to me about this couple is that 
while they both had rap sheets individually, they were also fraudsters as a pair. So they stole and sold antiques across the Midwest to support their lifestyle. But as detectives questioned them, details about the pair and their relationship shocked law enforcement. The fraudulent antique business provided the couple funds to pay young women to be part of their, quote, family. And these women were recruited by Bailey through her fake Tinder account. So remember, was her Tinder account just for fraud? Mm. And being wanted, not necessarily. What would happen is Aubrey would then pay the women who Bailey recruited to be in a sexual relationship with him. He called himself the vampire sugar daddy and the women his witches. Aubrey had rules for them that included they weren't allowed to see other men and they had to frequently call and check in with him. I mean, like, you know, every couple of hours. I'm sorry, Bailey was recruiting or she was involved in the relationships as well? Both. Okay. She was recruiting and she was involved mm -hmm. in these relationships. Yes. In some ways, this was like a backwards prostitution ring and almost cult-like, but not quite. We're going to unpack this cult, not cult idea later on in the episode. But police had had enough evidence after the interviews to arrest both Aubrey and Bailey on December 4th, 2017. Sydney was still missing, Amy, and the couple gave no indication in their interviews where Sydney might be. However, shortly after Bailey and Aubrey's arrest, investigators located Sydney. And unfortunately, not in the way her family and friends had hoped. Pushed back along the side of a gravel road in Edgar, Nebraska, which is about an hour from Wilbur, where Sydney's phone last pinged, Sydney Loof's body was found dismembered in multiple, and I mean many, many, many garbage bags. The remains were already in an advanced state of decay, but the medical examiner was able to determine that Sydney was strangled to death. There was the petechial hemorrhaging in her eyes, which means that, you know, her eyes had those small red or purple dots due to ruptured blood vessels. Mm -hmm. And this is very indicative of strangulation. Sydney's death was officially ruled a homicide with dismemberment to follow. When confronted with the evidence, would Aubrey and Bailey confess? I, I can guess what's going to happen. Oh, yeah? They're going to turn on each other. Mm. Let's see. You might think so. I could tell you that they would not confess. They both opted to go to trial. Aubrey would even take the stand in his own defense. Were they tried separately or together? They were tried separately. We've discussed this in other episodes. People who take their own stands. Pretty, it's pretty rare for people to mm -hmm. take the stand. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that it was a bad move, especially when you don't have much credibility. You're convicted felon, which Aubrey was. What's his defense? Is that he had nothing to do with it or is it an affirmative defense? Yeah, let's let's start with Aubrey. Good question. While Aubrey would not confess to detectives about murdering Sydney, he did confess to killing her during his time on the stand. However, he claimed that it was an accidental murder. OK, so this is what he has to say. He claimed that he'd paid her to be a participant in this you know, sexual fantasy that went too far and that he accidentally strangled her to death during this escapade. He said that afterwards he panicked, dismembering Sydney and dumping her remains. Prosecutors had great evidence to refute this claim, though, Amy, and they presented surveillance footage from the morning of November 15th, which was the morning before Sydney's second date with, you know, quote, Audrey. The footage clearly shows Bailey and Aubrey buying drop cloths, 
cleaning products, saws, and a meat grinder. Yeah, that sounds like premeditation. Exactly. How did he explain that on the stand? Did they confront him with that information? Because I'm not sure how you could explain that away. I don't know exactly what he said about that, but I'm sure that he said something to the effect of we were cleaning the apartment. We were, you know, things that people say mm -hmm. when they get caught doing mm -hmm. that. They didn't find some of these things. And a meat grinder, I don't believe, was actually used in the crime. But I will tell you, there was also footage from Menards, you know, where Sydney worked. And this is really creepy because the, the footage showed Aubrey entering the store as Sydney was leaving. He's clearly watching her without her knowledge before he buys several tools from that store that were likely used to dismember her. That's unbelievable. So, yes, the, the premeditation was very clear, I think. The landlord from Bailey's apartment during this trial discussed the intense smell of bleach that we discussed. I mean, again, I said it's haunting because it was clear that it was premeditated. But it wouldn't end there. Out of nowhere during a day of his usual trial proceedings, I don't think you're even going to believe this, but Aubrey suddenly shouted out, Bailey is innocent and I curse you all. And then he cut his own throat with a razor blade. He clearly snuck into the courtroom from jail. What? Exactly. I, I didn't see that coming. I thought I knew this case, but I... They usually turn on each other, but he did not turn on her, okay, which so was surprised. Did he die? No. He survived this suicide oh. attempt, and the trial continued without him, even though his counsel had petitioned for a mistrial. I think that was his goal, too, to get a mistrial. Well, he probably also wanted to say that he was not competent to stand trial, right? That's very possible as well. In the end, though, the jury convicted Aubrey for the murder and dismemberment of Sidney Loof in 2019. The court found that he had met the criteria for depravity in that his act was premeditated, senseless, his victim helpless against him, and that he unnecessarily mutilated her. And subsequently, or because of that finding, because he met the depravity, he was sentenced to death. All right. During his sentencing hearing, he changed his story again, saying that he killed Sydney for fear that she was going to report him to authorities for living a fraudulent lifestyle that included group sexual encounters, but that it was, again, not premeditated. Based on all the evidence provided, he was clearly lying. He can't even take the high road at this point and just show remorse. He needs to just keep going. Nope. Well, the changing stories were just so nonsensical, too. They just didn't make sense. All right, but what about Bailey? Well, Bailey also stood trial for Sydney's murder, and her lifestyle really took, you know, center stage for the prosecution. She was luring women to Aubrey to join this, remember, this daddy vampire cult, not cult. And more than one of the women who'd been involved in these daddy vampire escapades testified that Aubrey and Bailey discussed killing on a regular basis, believing that there were magical powers that could be derived from breathing in the life of an innocent person as they died. Right. This has to, remember, they kind of fancied themselves a cult with witches, so there's something to this possibly but they also gave evidence that Aubrey and Bailey had discussed just wanting to torture and kill a woman at some point because the two were sadistic unfortunately for Sydney the pair were able to live out their sinister fantasy when Bailey matched with Sydney on tinder just so you know Bailey did turn in that mm -hmm. her defense was that she was abused mm -hmm. by Aubrey. She was manipulated and she was kind of just a pawn as well. Yep. 
But I got to tell you, that did not bode well at her trial. The other women who testified, did they say that they were abused? Were there any violence against these women or it was all consensual sexual acts? It was consensual in some regard. But, you know, you could tell Aubrey, I mean, he was a control freak. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't necessarily doubt that he was abusive at some point, but I don't believe that was the crux of their testimony. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was a lot of evidence to show or a lot of examples of ways in which Bailey was her own leader. There wasn't really any evidence that she was abused, and the jury did not believe it. In the end, Bailey was convicted of first-degree murder, and that was in 2020, but she did not get the death penalty. She got life in prison. They did not find that she met the depravity standard, and I'm not sure what the difference was legally or if it was more of an extra-legal factor of gender. We'll talk about that at the end. Okay. So— We have a lot to unpack here for how to explain the pair's behavior criminologically. I got to tell you, I sat with this for a while, just so you know, sat and thought on it. So I'm going to try to give this a try and then I'm going to ask you to help me or ask you, you know, what you think, what the difference is or if you have another opinion. But let's start with Aubrey. Aubrey's clearly a career criminal. He began offending early in his life and continued to over and over again. What's interesting to me, Amy, is that his worst offense was at age 51, much later than the usual desisting years of late 40s. I see you have a hand up, though. Go ahead. Yes, because that does that just means he got caught at 51. That doesn't mean it's his first offense. No, 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 no. But his I said not first worst. As far as we know, it's possible that he has murdered before and just got away with it. Although I'm not sure that I believe that to be the case, but it's always It's always something we have to think about, that it's possible. We only know what we know. That's possible. He just didn't seem like the sharpest tool in the shed. I just Mm -hmm. feel like he probably would have been caught for something as serious as this. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that you're right. It's a a fairly good point. I just thought it was odd. If it is, it's weird that this was the age at which Mm -hmm. he committed this offense. That's not typical. Most offenders do not have such a violent offense for the first time at 51. Yes. Um, Aubrey seemed to be the product of broken social mm-hmm. bonds with no love or attachments to family or other pro-social institutions. So he turns to crime. That's not very surprising. We've seen that before. We, we teach about this. Social bond theory is very strong. There's social bonds that keep you attached to society and prevent you from committing crime. And that's family, friends, your involvement in social activities, but in, in pro-social ones, your belief or faith. So I don't think Aubrey had any of those. So I'm going to say his lack of social bonds is one of the reasons he turned to crime. Now, he's also, Amy, an innovator in criminological terms, which is basically finding a criminal way to earn a living due to blocked opportunities, which usually stem from lack of education, vocation, and really the support that goes towards getting a mainstream profession. Mm -hmm. So I'm also going to say his Financial crimes are in response to strain, strain theory, so stress or frustration from blocked opportunities. And so he turned to the response of innovation, which is one of the five ways that people respond to strain. I don't think that theory could be used to explain the crime against Sydney, though. Do you see any? Absolutely I know you're not. explaining his nope. trajectory, though. Okay. I am. And I'm explaining Mm -hmm. how I think different theories kind of account for different parts of his offending Mm -hmm. and different Mm -hmm. parts of his life. He's more complicated. And I really think that Aubrey also wanted power and control over young women. He established this cult-like framework, you know, which most cult leaders do. But I think the difference is that Aubrey wasn't charismatic enough to be a cult leader. So 
Instead, he's paying young women for sex, which is not a cult by any measure. But he had a distorted view of himself as someone who had more power than he did. And I think that's ironically probably because of how little power and control he had in reality. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he sees himself as someone who's more powerful or wants to see himself as that cult leader. I'm the daddy vampire. But I think it's because this man was actually very powerless. Mm-hmm. Possible, right? Okay. Combined with all of these factors, Aubrey has a lot of telltale signs of antisocial yeah. personality disorder. Were you going to bring that up? That was going to be, for me, my main my main theory with him has to be something a psychological, biological explanation because it just, right. it's too heinous. It is. And um, what are these? So I said a lot of telltale signs. Well, I would say they range from, first of all, his history of juvenile offending, mm-hmm. which is a key characteristic of antisocial behavior, to his parasitic lifestyle, mm-hmm. his promiscuity, his manipulation, his proclivity for lying, his lack of remorse. I'm going to go ahead and say that he would score very high on the hair psychopathy checklist, which measures personality disorder on a 40 point scale. I kind of mentally went through and started scoring him. I'm like, I think I put him at like a like a 36 or 38. He also has delusions of grandiosity by being like the leader of this, quote, cult. Yes. So I think, Amy, you know, the, the crime itself is very shocking, but I don't think it's a surprise that Aubrey committed such a heinous act. Do you? No, I'm more interested in understanding Bailey because it doesn't surprise me as much when you look at Aubrey's background mm-hmm. and some of his personality traits. But Bailey, I don't know enough about her to really understand. Bailey is, you know, I, I don't either. I got to say she's more complicated. I'm going to attempt it right now. But Bailey is more complicated in this situation. Bailey grew up without a father, as I mentioned earlier. But she had a devoted mother who raised a reportedly happy child by all accounts. It does seem, from what I read, that there was a shift following high school. And I believe that Bailey's abusive relationship with her child's father probably led her to some very serious, say, strain and anger. And I'm not sure that Bailey had the proper coping mechanisms to deal with this at all. The fact that she immediately went looking for a sugar daddy or someone to financially support her right after this, you know, shows a level, I think, of immaturity as well. And I think that Bailey was attracted to Aubrey because he was older. I think he was probably able to pick up on the cues from Bailey that she was abused. And it might be, you know, easier for Aubrey to steer Bailey in his direction, which I think is why he likely sought out much younger and more vulnerable women So I believe that Bailey was eager to please Aubrey in that regard. I believe she saw him. Maybe it was somewhat of a father figure, just older stability, Mm -hmm. something that she didn't have in her childhood and then something that she really lacked in her relationship. An abusive relationship was, I think that was substantiated too, that she was abused. Mm -hmm. I don't know that Bailey would have committed an act like this if it weren't for meeting Aubrey, but I suspect that she would have committed other crimes. I do. I think she would have been an offender in different ways, maybe not this extreme. I think she had a lot of anger. And I'm not saying, by the way, I just want to make it clear, I am not saying all people who are abused act out this anger by abusing others. That's Mm -hmm. absolutely not what I'm saying. I just think in her case, she had some anger and it did seem to be following that relationship. It also seems to me that in this circumstance, if Bailey happened to meet someone 
who was a healthy relationship, it could have turned things around for her. It's where we get that like nature, nurture, you know, like which path it takes you down. I think if she met someone in a loving relationship, maybe she would have continued to commit the crime she was committing. I don't know. Maybe it wouldn't have escalated to violent crimes. I think the fact that she met Aubrey is what kind of set her down a certain path. So you're kind of talking about life course theory then, right? Yep. Yep. When I talk about, I always, when I forgot when I say trajectory, that's life course. But yes, yes, I'm talking about life course theory that, you know, there are certain points in a person's life that could have them desist from crime or continue on. And I think in this case, Bailey was down the trajectory of committing crime. And I think had she met someone that would have been a healthy relationship or had she found a job or some sort of positive social bond, I think it's very possible that she would have been a desister or at the very least that she would have never escalated to violence. It's a great point, Amy. Thank you. I also don't believe that she was afraid as Aubrey as she or her defense mm-hmm. claimed. What I think it's possible is that she was afraid of losing him. And I think that she enjoyed the power that she got from luring victims in. I think it was her way to exert power. I think in some ways also that this was learning theory. Mm-hmm. And I guess I say that because I see Aubrey as kind of the teacher and Bailey as his willing student. Do you see that as well? You know, that could help us understand her behavior in a few ways because she was a victim of abuse and then she ended up being an abuser. So social learning theory can help us understand that relationship. But more so, yes, I think she was very much influenced Mm -hmm. by Aubrey and he taught her both the psychological or emotional techniques. In other words, like how to neutralize how she was feeling possibly if she was having any shame or guilt from what she was doing. Right. And also probably practically, he probably was the one who taught her. I'd be curious to know who was the one who actually strangled Sydney, who was the one who dismembered, was one of them more instrumental in the murder of Sydney and the other person. Like, I'd be curious to know. I mean, I'm going to guess Aubrey strangled her, mm-hmm. even though that's not necessarily true, just mm-hmm. because, you know, strangulation is more yep. so mm-hmm. a, a male's game. And he was a big guy, mm-hmm. a really big guy. And Bailey is small. Mm-hmm. She was kind of smallish. So I don't know. I don't know if she would have possessed the physical strength. Although if Sydney was incapacitated, certainly she might have. This case reminded me or these two remind me of Carla Homolka and Paul Bernardo. Do you mm-hmm. remember we covered that case? Yes. And I think had they not been caught, there'd be several more victims. I don't think they would yes. have stopped. They would have. These two would have kept going for sure. Yeah, I absolutely agree that they're very similar to those two. Well, because Carla also claimed that she was afraid of Mm -hmm. Paul. And I I, I believe she was. She was abused Mm -hmm. by him and there was documented. But I think Carla was more so afraid of losing him for such a long time that she complied with his his offending and became an offender herself. Okay, before I move on to just to discuss the criminal justice system, I think we covered theory and explaining this to the best of our abilities. Anything else or should we go for digging this part? No, I think we should talk about the punishment. So this is really hard for me to answer whether or not the system got it right. I'm struggling with it because you have two offenders here, both with reported histories of abuse. In Aubrey's case, it was more well documented, to be honest, but both receiving different sentences for the same crime. In her sentencing hearing, Bailey's mother begged the judges to spare her life because Bailey had a child. And I suspect this played a role in the decision to give her life in prison, even though she wasn't raising her child. 
Bailey's mother was raising her child. Now, the question is, Amy, is this fair? Two offenders, same crime, with difficulty discerning who did what, sentenced differently. No, I don't think it's fair. And I don't think her being a mother, especially the fact that she was an absent mother, to me, that should not even be a factor in this decision. I think you mentioned it before that she probably got spared because of her gender. I'm not saying that I think they both should have got death or they both should have got life without parole. I'm not sure which punishment, but I do think they should have received the same punishment based on what I know. All right. I'm glad you said that. I agree with you. I was, I'm bothered by the fact that there were two different mm-hmm. sentences and I don't know either um, whether life or death is appropriate. You know, I'm usually stronger on one or the other. I'm not mm-hmm. sure, but different. Is this what discretion gets us? And is that okay? I guess is the question. And I think it sounds like you're saying no, <laughs> but you still favor some discretion. <laughs> This is the problem when I, I teach my students, like the different models of justice. There's the equal justice model, which says that we should treat everyone the same and there should be no room for individualization when we're talking about punishment. And I understand that on the one hand, because that closes the door to biases. But on the other hand, it closes the door to proper discretion, because sometimes I do think that discretion is necessary. In this case, Again, I wasn't sitting in that courtroom. There might be other information I'm not aware of. But from what I know, there's no evidence that I can see that shows that Bailey was any less culpable. So I don't know if it's because of her gender or the fact that she's a mother, but I would bet that her gender helped her out in this situation. Well, it certainly couldn't be the difference in the legal factors because the legal factors Mm -hmm. were the same for both cases. Exactly. Regardless of our thoughts on this area, the system did work in terms of apprehending and convicting the right offenders. Mm -hmm. And I'm just so sorry that Sydney and her family were the victims of such a horrendous crime. It's really awful. Sydney's memory, however, survives, though, and is honored by the Set Me Free Project, an organization that provides the Sydney Loof Memorial Scholarship for students of criminal justice and cybersecurity in hopes that these career paths will help prevent the type of awful crime committed against Sydney. That's wonderful. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. It's a nice way to honor her memory. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, thank you again to our listener, Mary Ruth, who suggested this very interesting case. That's all we have for today's episode. We hope to see you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include klknTV.com, an article in people.com, an episode of Heartland Homicide, and the Nebraska Supreme Court transcript of appeal. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.